So I'm going to edit and add this to the beginning of this episode because this is an example right here of the individuality, colonialism, and oppression that still continues to exist here within the United States. And we're going to be getting into a discussion about why we need to you know, combat that here in this episode. So this is a ruling that came about today. Um, so the article reads, A unanimous Supreme Court ruled Monday that thousands of people living in the U.S. for humanitarian reasons are ineligible to apply to become permanent residents. Justice Alina Kagan wrote for the court that federal immigration law prohibits people who entered the country illegally and now have temporary protected status from seeking green cards to remain in the country permanently. The designation applies to people who come from countries ravaged by war or disaster. It protects them from deportation and allows them to work legally. There are 400,000 people from 12 countries with TPS status. The outcome in a case involving a couple from El Salvador who have been in the U.S. since the early 1990s turned on whether people who entered the country illegally and were given humanitarian protections were ever admitted into the United States under an immigration law. Kagan wrote that they were not. The TPS program gives foreign nationals non-immigrant status, but it does not admit them. So the conferral of TPS does not make an unlawful entrant eligible for a green card, she wrote. The House of Representatives has already passed legislation that would make it possible for TPS recipients to become permanent residents, Kagan noted. The bill faces uncertain prospects in the Senate. The case pitted the Biden administration against immigrant groups that argued many people who came to the U.S. for humanitarian reasons have lived in the country for many years, given birth to American citizens, and put down roots in the U.S. In 2001, the U.S. gave Salvadoran migrants legal protection to remain in the U.S. after a series of earthquakes in their home country. People from 11 other countries are similarly protected. They are Haiti, Honduras, Myanmar, Nepal, Nicaragua, Somalia, South Sudan, Sudan, Syria, Venezuela, and Yemen. Monday's decision does not affect immigrants with TPS who initially entered the U.S. legally and then, say, overstayed their visa, Kagan noted, because those people were legally admitted to the country and later were given humanitarian protections, they can seek to become permanent residents. So just a quick little comment, and then I'm going to, you know, go into the episode because I think we discussed some of this in, in depth, but this is yet another example of the United States being the destruct the destruction and the devastation of the world through war through climate crisis through economic oppression through military and puppet regime replacement through economic sanctions and through occupation and yet by being the very reason why these people need to seek refuge, it is able to turn around and say, no, you actually cannot 
reside here. This is a fascist dictatorship of a ruling class elite, which is willing, able, and continues to destroy the world, massacre and genocide people and non-human beings such as land, water, air, and plantation. And then when those people have nowhere to live, have no way of surviving, have no way of feeding themselves, have no way of protecting themselves from the climate disasters which the capitalist and colonial states have created and intensified, they seek out refuge and yet are incapable of finding that refuge because the very countries who create their need for that refuge deny them. Fuck the United States of America and fuck the Supreme Court decision. The Supreme Court is an absolute useless, dictatorial, fascist, and oppressive regime of 12 to 13 individuals who rule over a country of 340 million people. Fuck the Supreme Court. Fuck the United States of America. And let's get more into that in the episode. Thanks for listening. Hey, folks. How's everybody doing? It is your boy, Josh. And welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is educating about and working towards a true people's liberation movement. And hopefully one day, a true proletarian revolution. Um, But until we get there, like I said, uh, I am your host, Josh. Uh, If this is your first time swinging by, nice to meet you. I hope you enjoy the show. Let me know what you think. Go ahead and drop a a comment uh, on Apple Podcasts. You know, leave a a rating. Um, Let me know what you think by reaching out to me at uh, in Defense of Liberation on all social media, basically, uh, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, you can also find me by emailing me at indefensiveliberation at gmail.com. No caps, no spaces. And let me know what you think. Um, if this is your, you know, you coming back, I definitely appreciate that. And I hope that I can continue making a show worth listening to for you folks and everybody else who swings on by. Um, So today, we are going to discuss a few things. Um, First and foremost, we are going to discuss the idea of intersectionality and internationalism, which I believe are two uh, bases of thought that are very clearly and obviously left out in just about any and all uh, organization that is being done or being led by white leftists, whether that is here in the United States, in Canada, in France, in England, it doesn't matter. Um, It's very obvious that white chauvinism, which we will define and discuss later, um, has yet to really be struggled against and taken apart in these societies. And so I want to talk about that and why it's important. Uh, and then we're going to finish off with a little little discussion on a recent book that I read. Um, and we're going to cap it off with a little 
charge of action, yeah? So the theories of intersectionality and internationalism um, kind of get usually this vague understanding from most, most folks on the left. Um, which I don't, you know, think is necessarily anyone's fault, per se. This is never the way that we are intending to have these discussions. We critique theories and we critique movements, but we do not critique individuals because we are no better than anyone else um, and only aiming to learn from these, you know, conversations. But most folks, especially that I interact with uh, here in the U.S., have some pretty backwards ideas, whether they are quote unquote good people, which you know that can encompass folks, you know anywhere on the political spectrum, um, but even you know folks who call themselves leftists, socialists, communists, anarchists, Marxists, a lot of these folks uh, fall short of a lot of their conceptions and analyses of the world that we find ourselves in. So just to hit some some brief quote-unquote definitions, we'll try to define them as best myself, and then I guess I can look up the words and see what Google gives me. But intersectionality, based off of this guy's um, definition, would be the theory of having every struggle, you know, so you got to think black liberation, you got to think the women's struggle, you got to think transgender struggle, you got to think the end of capitalism and imperialism, you got to think the end to the environmental decay caused by capitalism and imperialism, you got to think about the indigenous people's struggle, you got to think about what it is to live under nation statehood, Um, there's a lot of different struggles that are taking place and intersectionality is a theory that is in its best, you know, uh, examples summarizes or synthesizes each one of these struggles into a conscious and organized unilateral struggle that is meant to get to the root of all of these problems while not stopping or forgetting about a single one um, along the way. Uh, There is no struggle that can be ignored if one is to truly call themselves intersectional. Um, And that means more than just talking about these people's struggles. That means actively working alongside with people to end their struggles, to resist and to put a stop to the oppression of people all over the world. Um, Intersectionality, the word, as defined by uh, Wikipedia, says, intersectionality is an analytical framework for understanding how aspects of a person's social and political identities combine to create different modes of discrimination and privilege. The term was conceptualized and coined by Kimberly Williams Crenshaw. Um, So that's just kind of like a broad overview of what the word and the the idea of intersectionality means vaguely. 
But when we are discussing here, we are discussing how we are to implement it in our day-to-day lives, not just the, the broad idea. So we got to figure then that intersectionality means implementing all social, political, economic, racial, sexual, gender-based, um, national-based struggles and fighting for and working to educate ourselves about and put an end to each one of these struggles in everything that we do and everything that we organize for. So now this theory of internationalism is something that, again, uh, because I think intersectionality is more of a locale-based theory, you know, like uh, when you're organizing, uh, your intersectionality impacts mostly uh, the ways in which your organization organizes with people of different groups. Whereas, you know, that that, uh, intersectionality doesn't necessarily impact the outward or already existing environment of division and separation. You're working towards combating that, but like, you're doing it within your organization, right? Um, And also, you know, you should be doing it alongside with other organizations. You know, another part of intersectionality is working alongside with uh, similar organizations who are struggling for maybe different things than you have the time and ability to struggle for at this current moment. Uh, aiding them in any way that you can, showing up to support them at demonstrations, teach-ins, you know, people's meetings, etc., and working towards actually trying to facilitate connections between these different struggles and between different people groups. That's the difference, is taking actual concrete action to create that reality. And internationalism should be viewed in the same light. So the theory of internationalism um, is defined as a political ideology. It says internationalism is a political principle that advocates greater political or economic cooperation among states and nations. It is associated with other political movements and ideologies, but can also reflect a doctrine, belief system, or a movement in itself. So essentially, internationalism is a framework, right? It is a philosophy that one must have that encompasses the struggles of not only the people within our own locality, but how these struggles connect to and impact the entire globe and the people who are struggling across that globe. Um, We cannot discuss the impact of oil and natural gas uh, extraction and burning without discussing the oppression of people all along in the global south as well as our indigenous relatives here in North America. We can't forget the struggle of the people who build the materials and, and uh, you know, the resources for the pipeworks, for the uh, production facilities, um, and the underpayment and abuse that we see all across the world in different workers' workplaces 
is not, you know, going to escape these places where they refine and extract oil either. Um, so we have to understand that that struggle is connected internationally, it is connected intersectionally, and it is connected across the globe um, for the sake of emancipating everyone. Because as the, the common phrase is, um, as long as anyone is oppressed, no one is free. Um, as long as there is you know, anyone who is suffering uh, second-class human hood, um, I guess I should say personhood, um, if there is a single group of people who is oppressed, who is made subjected to, you know, the will of the, the minority over the majority for the benefit and the economic and social and political profiteering of the minority over the majority, there is no group that is truly free while this continues, because this is the people. And until the people generally are free, the people will never be truly free. Uh, internationalism was almost, you know, perfectly in some cases, albeit, you know, some examples could lead to some questionable decision making. But, you know, by the non-aligned movement that Cuba and a few other countries were very instrumental in creating in opposition to the United Nations and other uh, global uh, organizations that put the needs of the quote-unquote third world, the quote-unquote underdeveloped nations to the back burner for the economic, political, and social benefit of the first world. Internationalism recognizes especially that the struggle of the working class here in the United States is not the principal contradiction. It is not the worst situation that workers find themselves in. And it should especially not be our one and only focus to emancipate the American quote unquote working class. It should be to connect the working classes of all nations, the working people of all states should be in connection. They should be in discussion. They should be forming organizations. They should be taking action. They should be organizing together. And they should be figuring out how to connect the struggles of the working people everywhere for the emancipation of working people everywhere. This is what true internationalism would and should look like. Now, the reason why I want to discuss intersectionality and internationalism is because here in the United States where I live, it is very clear in many of the organizations which I would like to participate with and which I would like to support have a absolutely terrible line on both these ideas. One group in particular is the international Marxist tendency, which believes that here in the first world, if we just simply have enough people going to meetings, enough people reading newspapers, we will be able to take over the world. There are people struggling all over the world, and the international Marxist tendency is in the millions. 
But yet, do I hear about them going over to these countries and aiding and arming and educating and being educated by and assisting the struggles? No. Could that be because, you know, Western propaganda doesn't let me see these things? Sure. Is it? No. It's because this organization is focused on reading theory. It's focused on a Trotskyist uh, line, which was proven incorrect by history almost 100 years ago. And yet still they hold true to this doctrine, to this dogma of selling fucking newspapers and believing in a theory which was disproven by its very failure in the Soviet Union. If you are someone who calls yourself a Trotskyist, I wish wholeheartedly that you would read true, sincere Soviet and Russian history. Because honestly, you don't know what you're talking about. You genuinely need to reassess and educate yourself. And this is coming from someone who went to three to four Trotskyist meetings thinking that there could be something there. You know, like, it's no shame on you individually. It's no shame on, you know, people who want to build a connection, who want to learn and want to have this, this, you know, group of people that they are learning alongside with that's amazing, and that's one of the first steps to organizing is building community and relations, but it's only the first step. And Trotskyists, time and time again, just like Trotsky himself, never went far enough. They never were able and never are able to recognize the situation sitting right in fucking front of them, especially considering a majority of them still think that we are in the 1917 Soviet Union. On top of this, other organizations such as the DSA and the PSL, which I've talked about here, they aren't, you know, and this is the difficulty with a lot of these massive organizations like this, they aren't quote unquote bad because they are DSA or because they are PSL. Same, I guess, necessarily with the IMT, you know, Um, but the DSA, the PSL focus as a broad organization far too much on electoral politics, especially in the United States, which if we want to come up for a real quick reason as to why we should not be focusing on electoral politics here is because this is not our country. This is a settler colonial state, and we should be instead fighting to end any kind of electoral politics that continues to perpetuate that white supremacist and imperialist rule over the indigenous peoples of this country. However, electoral politics are important for the sake that this is where people's attention goes. So the reason why the DSA and the PSL are on my shit list is because instead of focusing their energy on necessarily bringing people away from this, they focus their energy on people dedicating more time to this. Another example would be someone a little bit further to the right, like Bernie Sanders or AOC. You know, I have a few friends who spent a lot of time, or even the Green Party. Um, I have a lot of friends who spent a lot of time, uh, um, uh, what's the word? I want to say boycotting, but that's very definitely not the word. 
um, uh, campaigning for Bernie Sanders, for uh, Jill Stein, for uh, a few different folks um, throughout the years. Um, and, you know, this is political organization. This is a step in the right direction. But we got to think the context here, you know, again, settler colonial state. If we're communists, anarchists, socialists or leftists, we have to fight and struggle to end this colonial domination, not support it in any way, shape or form. Um, on top of this, you know, all the money, resources, time and energy that was dedicated to that could have gone towards actually organizing and struggling towards ending this oppression. But instead, it was spent on perpetuating it. Um, and, you know, the DSA and the PSL, they do a lot of good stuff. They lobby. They bring a lot of good stuff to people's attention. They put out news sites. They organize and do demonstrations, mutual aid stuff, uh, teach-ins. And this is all great. But then the energy gets kneecapped because their end goal ultimately is not revolution. Their end goal is not working towards a complete and utter destabilization and destruction of this capitalist colonial class society. And if it is, they're doing a fucking poor job at it, okay? And this is coming from someone who is sitting on his ass and playing Skate 3 while recording this. So take that as you will. But I think it's a valid critique, and albeit it might be coming from someone who is lazy as fuck themselves, maybe, um, it, it still, you know, stands. And if you want to argue about, well, what are you doing, that's fine, and we can have that discussion, but that does not de-incentivize or devalue the critiques that, you know, this is truly and clearly failed organizing. Uh, on top of this, you have a obvious need for intersectionality and internationalism because a majority of the world is non-white, a majority of the world is non-male, a majority of the world exists outside of the United States. A majority of the world is oppressed and struggling in their own particular circumstances that each need to be fought against in their own particular uh, tactics and strategy. But we have to remain anti-capitalist. We have to remain anti-imperialist. We have to remain proletarian feminist. And we have to ultimately remain revolutionaries. If at any point our struggles are not working towards these things, they are not truly struggles in the right direction. And they are ultimately, in some way or another, reformism, revisionism, and opportunism. Whether it's implicit or explicit, whether it's conscious or unconscious, it doesn't matter. Because ultimately, it is leading the people away from their own rule and from their own emancipation. So, in conclusion, intersectionality and internationalism are incredibly important uh, principles that we should have at the center of all of our struggles, at the center of all of our organizations. 
if at any point there's a single group or person who is working against these things, they are counter-revolutionary and they must either be combated ideologically or by removing them from a situation wherein they can harm people they are trying to organize. I don't care how quote-unquote good a person is. There is one way and one way only to successfully emancipate the people. That is through, as Che Guevara says, unconditional love. Now, how can someone actually love indigenous relatives if they are fighting to uphold the United States electoral system, fighting to uphold a United States in general, fighting to uphold any kind of structure that looks like or continues to oppress our indigenous relatives here in North America, Latin America, Asia, Africa, Australia, etc. There is no love to be had for our indigenous relatives and comrades if this is the case. We are lying to ourselves and to them, and we must be ashamed of ourselves. The same goes for our black and brown brothers, sisters to, um, excuse me, our brothers, sorry, I, I got like mixed up on my words here. I was looking at a few different things. Excuse me here. This also goes for our black and brown brothers, sisters, trans folks, non-binary folks, and non-conforming folks, gender non-conforming folks, who are under their own particular oppression and need to be emancipated from that by their own means, by their own hands, and also with our own material support, our own physical solidarity, and our own actions aimed at the emancipation of our oppressed brothers, sisters, and, and other folks. Um, it is incredibly difficult to think that It's incredibly difficult to think that anybody can get caught in in a, in a form of ideology that is on the left, that anybody can call themselves socialist, communist, etc., um, while also remaining so blind to the you know this plethora of struggle that is continuously being ignored, and I mean continuously. One great example to read. It's a long one, but if you check out uh, People's History of the United States, you can see time and time again how white chauvinism, white supremacy, uh, heteropatriarchy, and uh, settler colonialism kind of continue to perpetuate themselves within even our most radical and revolutionary organizations here in the United States. And it's because we have our, you know, a part of our lens is blurry. Our analysis is half-baked. And it's because in a lot of cases, we want to ignore things that make us uncomfortable. But you are not a communist. You are not a socialist. You are not an anarchist. If you are not struggling with these things within yourself and within our society, beyond just simply saying we need to eliminate you know, class antagonisms, we need to uh, you know, take over and instill the dictatorship of the proletariat, it's not so simple and it's not so uh, rigid. Within all of these struggles, we have to be waging also a cultural one. We have to continuously be waging struggles against our conceptions of gender. 
our conceptions of race and how we act upon these things, even in our own personal lives. Um, something that I am working on personally, I grew up with um, a lot of women in my family who I grew a much greater connection to than the men in my life. Um, I think because of this and because of the piece of shit men who have been in my life my entire life, hey dad, um, I have, you know, kind of developed this, what I am beginning to recognize is unhealthy need to try to protect and uh, shield the women or femme uh, appearing folks in my life um, from the world, from people. And this is something that I am doing because I have implicit toxic masculinity. I have implicit sexism that tells me these women and femme appearing folks need my protection. Women, two spirits, trans folks, and femme appearing folks have been the leaders of struggles, organizations, resistance, demonstrations, movements, etc., all across the world for far longer than I've been able to even understand that there's something wrong with that society. These women and femme appearing folks in my life do not need me to protect them. And so something that I've been doing has been dedicating a lot of my time to feminist uh, theory to begin to wrestle with this very unhealthy and implicit sexism. And this is one of the things that we need to do in our own selves. But if we're not doing that to take that to the world and to take that into our organizations, then what the fuck is the point? Just so we can be smarter than people? So we can have read a few more books than other people? Go fuck yourself. Nobody cares. The point is to change things. The point is to get better. And that's why we have to constantly be waging internationalist and intersectional struggles within ourselves, within our situations, within our societies and our organizations. Otherwise, we are 100% failing. I don't care how much uh, uh, gains you have. It is for a certain group of people and you are still upholding this white supremacist class society. We cannot do anything that perpetuates this reality. So I want to cap this off with a brief discussion of a book that I actually just finished reading today. Um, it is called a Red, uh, The Red Deal. Uh, um, excuse me. Uh, Indigenous Action to Save the Earth. Um, it was written by the Red Nation. Um, it is 142 pages. You can find it on commonnotions.org. And if you're going on there, you know, please do consider becoming a uh, consistent supporter because, you know, grassroots led organizations like printing presses such as these are incredibly important to support and, and continue to uh, help exist, really. Um, the reason why I want to talk about this book is, uh, I would say, threefold. First and foremost, because it, it hits on the points that we were just making. White leftists everywhere. A, 
need to shut the fuck up and listen for a little bit. And I know this is coming from a white leftist who has a podcast who never shuts the fuck up and listens. Um, but this is something I myself am working on. Uh, it is a progress, or, or I should say it's a progression, and it is a process that I will have to continue waging for the rest of my life. Because when you live in a white supremacist, uh, racist society, as Angela Davis says, it is not enough to be non-racist, you must be anti-racist. And the same goes for sexism, transphobia, homophobia, um, ethnocentrism, um, and all of these beliefs that make us think that we're better than anyone for whatever reason. We have to wage our struggles against these constantly for the rest of our lives. Um, so the second reason why I want to bring up this book is because it's a genuinely fucking good book. Um, and I think that anybody who is wondering uh, kind of how the environmental struggle should be going, uh, looking forward, um, and some of the strategies that we need to take to begin fighting uh, the end of the earth and begin waging struggle against capitalist, imperialist, and military powers all across the world who are destroying our planet. Um, and thirdly, it is because it centers an indigenous voice. Uh, it was written by the Red Nation, which is an indigenous-led organization. They are a podcast. They are a uh, vanguard organization. They are communists. They are leftists. They are indigenous. And they are fighting to see an end to you know the imperial and colonial oppression of indigenous people and non-humans everywhere. Um, and I guess that would actually be a fourth reason why I would recommend that book and recommend just about anything from our indigenous relatives because something that has been put in my face from continuing to le read more indigenous uh, um, texts and things is this, I don't want to call it a theory because I feel that is disrespectful, but this ideology um, that discusses plants, water, land, and air as quote-unquote uh, non-human relatives. That, you know, this is something that is new to me and just the utter respect and, um, you know, want to save and, and create uh, proper uh, relations and existence for the earth is something that we do not see in our capitalist, individualist societies. You know, this is something that's actually quite new to me as a white person in the, uh, the United States. So, yeah, this book is really, really great. And I think that one of the most important parts can be found, you know, really in the... Um, in the end, in the conclusion here, let me go get my copy of the book so I can read this. Um, because I think that, and I will say this is copyright material. This was written by the Red Nation, published by uh, Common Notions. Uh, the illustration and design was done by Josh uh, McAfee. And it was also uh, done by Red Media. Um, but this... This conclusion here is incredibly important. Um, 
I'm not going to read the whole thing, but um, I think that this part right here is really good. So as the Red Deal uh, quote from the Red Deal Indigenous Action to Save Our Art. As the Red Deal continues to be read, shared, debated, and implemented, we ask that its indigenous intent in design not be decentered or whittled down for the sake of expediency, or that it be reduced to cultural or spiritual window dressing for otherwise scientific, economic-driven programs likely designed by white dude experts. Unlike thinkers who center European thought, politics, and movements, to not only perpetuate European colonialism, but also try to apply it to the entire world, indigenous knowledge is not uh, parochial, P-A-R-O-C-H-I-A-L, thought that applies to just one local culture, one place, or one time period. Indigenous knowledge is rigorous, scientific, inclusive, diverse, and ever-changing. The knowledge we share in the knowledge we share in is comprised of indigenous science, economics, and political science that must be at the center of any climate justice program, just as our youth, women, and warriors have been since its inception. Our emphasis on indigenous knowledge may seem like a rehashing of what is already available to movements worked through by other indigenous organizations, movements, scholars, or leaders that precede us. Some may read this and feel discouraged or uninspired because we are not proposing anything new. The truth is, we are not, not entirely at least. The methods of decolonization and revolution we draw from, as well as our focus on how, quote, indigenous knowledge incites transformation and change, unquote, aren't anything new. But this is because we understand the Red Deal and the Red Nation more broadly, as belonging to long-standing dynamic traditions of indigenous resistance. Ours is a generational fight that picks up where our predecessors and ancestors left off. We are simply attempting to fulfill those original instructions that Valandra writes about, the same instructions that our ancestors set out all those years ago to fulfill. In many ways, we hope to be the culmination of our ancestors' freedom dreams, premised always on returning to our humanity and our origins as good relatives. What is perhaps different about the Red Deal is the scale of application we are proposing. Given the planetary reach of mass extinction caused by a global system of capitalism, our program for freedom must be equally audacious and far-reaching. There is no reason why indigenous revolutionaries can't lead us in this collective transition to the future. There is also no excuse to continue to sideline indigenous people or knowledge simply because of the racism and ignorance that underwrites so much of what counts for radical or revolutionary politics. The extent to which the left, particularly in North America, continues to do so will be the measure of its failure to contribute in any meaningful way to the global revolution yet to come. The Red Nation is not asking for a seat at the table of the ruling class or of the left. It is telling humanity to listen to indigenous people. Don't just take us seriously. Take our lead. For as Haudenosaunee feminist 
Teresa McCarthy argues, quote, assertions of indigenous knowledge provide models that pose alternatives to mainstream ideas, unquote. Something that we desperately need in these times. In her reflections on the leadership of Haudenosaunee, diplomats and governance systems in establishment of indigenous internationalism, McCarthy reminds us that, quote, the Haudenosaunee and other indigenous nations of the world built an entire international indigenous human rights infrastructure with no resources other than words and language, unquote. Our words are powerful and our knowledge is inevitable. Both come from and reaffirm the worlds we inhabit and continue to build even under apocalyptic conditions. They convey strength and innovation because we belong to long traditions of indigenous resistance, as we have done this before. As comrade Nick Estes's book states, our history is the future. In closing, we hope these words move you to act. Each day in the Red Nation, we study, theorize, enact, and experiment with everything we have laid out here in the Red Deal. We govern ourselves and our relations according to one simple philosophy, be a good relative. We are as a collective an experiment in practicing infrastructures of indigenous world making premised on this central edict. We don't always get it right, but we refuse to give up because we carry the dreams of our ancestors in our hearts. These dreams will never steer us wrong, and they will not steer you wrong. The struggle to remember our humanity through our love for the earth will define the future for all. Join us. We are waiting for you. We welcome you. And we are ready to act. Unquote. That comes from what I read was page 145, 146, and 147 of the physical copy of the Red Deal Indigenous Action to Save the Earth. Now, real quick. Um, so there's some folks that might be listening to this who, for whatever reason, don't know the Red Nation, don't like the Red Nation, don't think the Red Nation is this, that, or the other thing. I don't necessarily think that this is the point to get lost on. I think a lot of times we do this thing where, oh, I don't like this person. I don't like this group of people. I don't agree with this group of people. So they're in everything they say or do is wrong. And I will never listen to a word they say. But no matter who just said what I just read to you, you better fucking listen to it. Because that's what's going to change the face of the world and going to save us from complete and utter extinction. As the Red Deal says time and time again, decolonization or extinction has become our reality. And just because we want to deny that does not mean that it changes that reality. So in closing, I hope that going forward, we will continue to wage struggle within ourselves, within our organizations and within our communities, our friends, our family, and help to incite internationalism which can also be described as a collective mindset, the belief that we recognize that it is not our own safety, our own well-being, or our own uh, benefits that make something good. It is the progression 
of humanity, of the collective, of us as human beings and other than human relatives surviving what will be and what is becoming the apocalyptic reality for many people all over the world. We should remember in our day-to-day struggle, in our own personal lives, that no matter what we are going through, we have people who care about us. We have people who struggle the same way. And we especially have people who are suffering realities much worse than our own, who are continuing to stand up and resist against those implementing those realities upon them. If we want to see a true change to the world we live in, we must all come together and throw off our chains. Thank you for listening. If you would like to listen to more, you should be able to find me on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, um, all kinds of podcasting apps. Um, like I said at the top of the show, you can find me on social media at In Defense of Liberation on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also find me uh, in my blog at For Liberation, no caps, no spaces on that. Uh, dot Wix site w i x s i t e dot com forward slash website. Um, that's where my blog is at. So if you like this, but you'd like it in writing, you could find it there. It's not always as good. Uh, I do a poor job of writing in comparison to talking. Uh, I seem to do far more talking than writing. (laughs) Um, but yeah, thanks for listening. I appreciate the listen. Uh, go ahead and also check out my organization that I'm a part of leftist unification party. You can find us on social media everywhere. Um, and consider, uh, you know, looking at uh, joining along with whatever organizations that you can find that seem to be committing themselves to actually improving, educating, agitating, and working towards a better tomorrow. Um, And if you're a part of an organization that had that at its core and seems to be faltering, it is your responsibility to wage that struggle either within or against that organization so as to continue putting the needs of the people everywhere before the needs of the people uh, and ourselves just because we want to see things better for ourselves. Um, Thank you for listening again, and uh, we will see you next time. Uh, Bye.